the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, we see the town craftsmen react when the preaching of the gospel begins to affect their bottom line. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 19, verse 23. Once again, that's Acts chapter 19, verse 23. Verse 23. Now at that same time, there arose no small stir about that way. In other words, there was, King James is always very polite. So that means there was a massive commotion or disturbance about the way. Now that was the early name for Christianity. And Luke is about to describe to us what this commotion was about. Verse 24. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods, which are made with hands." So that not only this, our craft, is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. It's always a bad thing when your God can get voted out, when no longer has the ability to protect himself or herself. The psalmist says that, These gods, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have hands, but they can't help. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have feet, but they have to be carried around in a cart. And then it says, they that worship them are like unto them. That's what happens when you worship an idol. You become desensitized. You become less than what God intended you to be. Well, these guys, they they don't get it. This Demetrius, he's a trade guild leader of high-end shrine dealers. Now, these were small models of the temple. They'd put a little statue of Diana inside, and people would set it up in their home, or they'd wear it as an amulet. Now, that's some seriously big bling, I guess. But poor worshipers would buy terracotta shrines, but the wealthy would buy silver ones. So these guys are dealing with the wealthy. These are the money makers, And sales were always highest during the great festival to Diana in the month of May. Now, what's interesting about that is Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 16, 8, that his plan was to stay through at Ephesus 
through the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost would be at the end of May, at the same time as the festival. So it is likely the adversaries that Paul anticipates are from this guild. With sales dropping due to all the people getting saved and giving their lives to the Lord, they'll want to make sure that this is still a big payday. And so he says, he calls all these guys together and he says, guys, this is how we get our money. This is where our income is. And you have seen and heard, not just at Ephesus, but this guy, Paul, he's persuaded people to turn away from our business, to turn away saying that they are not gods, those which are made with hands. Verse 27, so that not only our craft is in danger to be set at naught or to fall into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised or reckoned as nothing. Reckoned as nothing. And her magnificence should be destroyed, literally dethroned. Dethroned. I long for the day when every false god will be dethroned. Long for that day. And when the light of the Lord will reign. <laughs> now, lest we minimize the reality of the impact of the goddess Diana, uh, Pausanias was a Greek traveler and geographer. In one of his numerous writings, he mentions that Diana of Ephesus was worshipped more than any other deity in the world. And can you imagine anything more awesome than seeing that threatened by the message of God's love through Christ? What's most worshipped in our culture? A lot of things. And what's the main key issue in politics right now? It all comes down to money now, right? It's all about money. We all vote with our wallet. Who's going to keep it full? Or who's going to keep the government from taking money out of my wallet? It is heartbreaking to see Christians very often rally behind individuals solely for the purpose of their wallet. We will support and we will throw our support and our encouragement behind individuals who are immoral people, who are not good husbands, who are not good fathers, who don't manage their own money well, who don't live moral lives, but because we just want less government. I made a commitment to the Lord in my heart about 12 years ago, and I would no longer cast my vote for someone I didn't want my kids to grow up and be like. I would no longer do so. We say, well, you're just part of the problem. You're not voting for someone else is a vote for the person that's even worse. Listen, the nation that forsakes righteousness, God will judge. It doesn't say that God will be with the nation that chooses the lesser evil. If we have any hope of doing that which is correct, we need to stand for what is true and what is right. Because all too often, we are alienating an entire half of our nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ because we support those who are just as wicked as the other guys. I know that's not popular. I know that's not what some of you probably want to hear. But until we get back to what we're really supposed to be promoting, which is Christ and him crucified, we're not going to make an impact. We cannot hitch our wagon to political parties that have long since left the gospel. Our wagon needs to be hitched with our Savior. When true revival happens, it makes this kind of an impact on a city. We're not going to change things through the polls. We're going to change things through the gospel. 
We're going to change things through our own hearts being revived as we come to him. And the people around us are going, you know what? People aren't coming to the bars anymore. People aren't coming to the strip clubs anymore. People aren't living and, and, and investing in the human traffic anymore because you know what? They're not doing those things anymore. Don't we want to have that kind of an impact on our city? We can't lose hope. We can't just decide to say, well, let's just, just hang on. That is not our calling. That is the calling of the tribulation saints where it says, blessed is he who dies in the Lord until this is over. And if you hang on, praise the Lord, hang on. Our job is not to hang on. Our job is to win. Our job is to conquer. Our job is to plow a field, to lay the seed and to see God move. We have a task in front of us. And I understand, I get discouraged I see it and I get so discouraged and you just want to be like, why? Why even bother? But our call is not to just hang on. Our call is to win, to hold on, to hold fast and to hold forth and to call a wayward generation back to a loving savior who has not given up on them, who shed his blood for them every drop that they might be redeemed. We have a great message because we have a great savior. Don't give up hope. Well, verse 28, when they heard these things, they were full of wrath. Oh, I can't believe this. This is horrible. And they began saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they cried out, saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And it's in the imperfect, which means they kept shouting it over and over and over again. And, and this type of a practice is very common in the emotional-laden religious services of, of Hellenism, that Greek culture, the mystery religions. They would, they, they, well, I won't get into all the things they did, but the shouting was a very uh, a common part of their, their religious services. And so they're shouting this, great is Diana of the Ephesians, over and over and over. And so it says the whole city was filled with confusion. That's a real bad translation. It means the whole city gathered themselves into this disorderly mob. And it says that they having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, who were Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. So this big disorderly mob is kind of conglomerating and they latch onto a few of Paul's companions, no doubt looking for Paul, but not finding him, uh, whom they dragged into that Remember I mentioned last week this massive theater. It seated over 25,000 people. Some archaeologists believe over 50,000. They dragged these two guys into the theater. Now, this theater is where the gladiatorial games were held. Prisoners would be fed to the beasts. And, and so, obviously, upon hearing about this, Paul plans to go right in there, go right in there and talk to these guys because his friends are in there. And so verse 30 says, when Paul would have entered in, when he had planned to go in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. Now, you got to love Paul. I, I don't know what I'd do. I, I hope I would want to go in there. But Paul always had this mindset, if I can just talk to him, God will do something, you know? If I can just get him in front of me for just a few minutes. Remember later on in Acts where Paul, the Roman captain or whatever it was, it brings him up. And Paul says, hey, can I talk to the crowd? You know, you're thinking these people just tried to kill you. You know, and he's thinking, no, no, no. If I just talk to him, everything will be good. Paul always had that mindset. If I could just talk to him, God will do something. And that simple faith is so necessary in a world full of pessimism. But we need caution too. 
Paul's stubborn optimism often led him into situations that even God told him not to go to. But we still need voices that will call for us to take risks as well. And that's why we have the body of Christ, right? Some of us are inclined to more caution, right? And some of us are inclined to kind of rush in where angels fear tread. You know, we kind of have to be reeled back in. The cautious ones, you kind of, no, no, come on, it'll be good, it'll work, you know? And, 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 you know, we balance each other out. That's important that we have both groups. Well, here, the one group, the cautious group, is saying, uh-uh, Paul. It says, they, the disciples suffered him not. Uh, the more Paul resisted, persisted in his wishes to go, the more the disciples refused to let him. It's in, it's, again, it's in the imperfect tense. They just kept going back and forth. Verse 31, then word came because certain of the chief of Asia, these would be the Asiarchs. Each province in Asia had a, a, a Roman province had a group of 10 elected men who would supervise funds that were connected to the public games and the festivals that were in their region. And uh, it's interesting, these guys are high-ranking officials, which were his friends, that the gospel had penetrated this group of wealthy politicians. And so these guys who were his friends, they sent word unto him saying, please don't go in there, Paul. It is not good right now. You go in there, they're gonna kill you. So they were desiring, it's stronger, it means they're begging and pleading that he would not go in there. And so in the end, and rightfully so in this case, caution went out. Because the truth is, God didn't need Paul. He had everything in hand. Verse 32. Some therefore cried one thing. So we're back in the, te- the theater again. Some cried one thing and some another. For the assembly was confused. And the more part knew not why they were come together. <laughs> so there's this massive crowd and they're all there and this mob and they're all angry, but not everybody knows why they're angry. Why, what, what's going on? I don't know, but I don't like him, you know? And, and I, I don't like him either, you know? Too many taxes, you know? And, and just everybody's, you know, kind of just angry. And when a bunch of angry people are present, they're gonna look to the nearest thing that makes them mad. And unfortunately, Satan has always hated the Jews. He has always hated the Jews and he has created those prejudices amongst much people in the world. And so those prejudices now awaken anew. The Jews that were there, probably because they didn't like Paul either, and that's why they initially joined, they sent a spokesman up now to say that this riot isn't about them, but it's about the Christians. Verse 33. And so they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And we don't know who this guy is, but he's a spokesperson. Now the Jews have, you go forward. And Alexander beckoned with the hand and he would have made his defense unto the people. Listen, it's not, we didn't do anything this time. And, and you shouldn't be mad at us. It's the Christians you should be mad at. But it doesn't work, verse 34. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice, for about the space of two hours, cried out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Wow. That would get boring after about 30 seconds. Now, the reason that they reacted negatively to Alexander is because the Jews hated idolatry as well. And it often drew the ire of the Gentiles around them. And so seeing him up there solidified the mob. When he comes up, he says, hey, we, let me talk to everybody. You don't need to be mad at us. And, and, and oh, that's why we're here. Great is Diana, the Ephesians. You know, and they just start chanting for two hours straight. Now, it's kind of silly to imagine a massive crowd chanting to this repetitive tune for two hours. But what they're really chanting is, you can't take my gods away. You can't make me change my life. I refuse to repent and bend the knee to your way. And you know, does that tune sound a little bit more familiar? There are huge, massive rants on social media. 
we're not going to follow your God. We're not, you know, how, you know. And they just go on and on and on and on, don't they? Not so different. You know, the world hasn't changed much. And this is why God commands mankind to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus, to reject our own righteousness for his is a place that every unbeliever has to come to where they have to no longer say, great is Diana of the Ephesians. But as we sang this morning, God, you reign. Well, <laughs> verse 35. You gotta like the King James for little blurbs like this. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, I kind of picture, you know, the little guy, you know, coming out. Okay, guys, that's enough. The town clerk here, though, is not some little accountant guy. And if you're accountant, no offense. He's the chief magistrate. This guy is the highest elected official in the city. As a free city, Ephesus would always be able to elect its own officials who would work with the Roman proconsul who was over the entire province. And unlike Alexander, this guy actually wields some authority and so he gets the crowd to calm down. When he had appeased them or restrained them or quieted them, it says that he said, you men of Ephesus, what man is there that knows not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper or literally a shrine guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter. Now, he's referencing something that they would all know about, but that most of us would not recognize. Ephesus's claim to fame as the center for Diana worship stems from the legend that Zeus sent down her idol, her statue from the heavens, and it crashed right into their city. That's always a scary thing when God's throwing statues down at you. You know, I, I'd rather worship the Lord. He's never done that to me. But they had this idol crash into their city and, and they knew that Zeus had chosen them to be the guardian of her shrine. And so the magistrate references this to remind them of their own importance in the world and that there's no need for a pep rally. And I wish most in the world were as rational as he is. I would say, if, if there's no God out there, why are you so mad? Why, why are you so mad? Why are you so all bent out of shape about it? Let me be the ignorant peasant I am. But it doesn't work out that way, does it? Ah, you're really mad at somebody you don't think exists. You're really vehement about his lack of character for someone who's not even real. I don't see people having rants about Santa Claus for breaking into houses. The louder you have to shout to make your point, the closer you should examine to see if your point is wrong. And he's explained to them, Why, what are you doing here? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. He says, you ought to bring yourself under control. Don't do anything foolish. For you have brought hither these men which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Now that's interesting to me. The, church, the Christians at Ephesus didn't say nasty things about Diana or the people who worshiped there. Now, we know that Paul talked about sin and the wrongness of idol worship and the behaviors that were associated with it. In his letter to the Ephesians, he spends almost all of chapter four and five talking about not living their lives as other Gentiles who have an idolatrous mindset. In Ephesians five seventeen, Paul says, be ye therefore not partakers with them. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. So he had spoken about that. So how did the Ephesian Christians have such a good reputation in the city? Well, it goes back to the revival that we saw earlier. They were inward focused concerning sin. Revival doesn't start by picketing a gay parade. That is not where revival starts. It starts in my own heart as God deals with the ugliness of sin in my heart, of my own sin. 
Revival starts, if I'm going to make an impact, it's not going to be by picketing some rock person or, or some politician who blasphemes the name of the Lord. It's going to be me getting on my face before God and saying, Lord, what do you want to deal with that's right in this blasphemous place right here? What do I need to picket that's in here that you might change me? Yes, the Christians made the silversmiths mad, but overall they were respected in Ephesus. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Peter says, and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? I have found that in my life, whether it's in the work environment, the neighborhood, sports, all my kids played sports when they were little, and so, you know, I, I coached and stuff, and I, I, people knew I was a pastor, and they knew I, I didn't swear, and I didn't do all these other things, or whatever, and so, you know, my life contrasted with some others, but I found most unbelievers, if I was a hard worker, and I, I, I had integrity, and, and, and I, I lived up to my you know, I didn't, wasn't a hypocrite, that, that most of those folks, they, they didn't have any problem with me. Now, some people did because they got an ax to grind and they're angry at God or whatever it might be. But for the most part, most unbelievers were rational around me and they, they were curious about times. So why don't you do that? Or why, why this? Or why that? And we would have great conversations. But he goes on, he says, but an if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. And don't be afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, like they should or would of evildoers, that they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or life in Christ. The idea here is that they were respected in Ephesus because of their lives. They didn't need to go out and bash the temple and bash the people that went there. You know, the Bible says our wrath doesn't bring about God's righteousness. And so often we lash out at the world for its ugliness, but if we haven't been dealing with our own ugliness and the world sees right through that ruse, we end up whacking them upside the head with a massive log that's still stuck in our own eye. You got this speck in your eye and we're just all over the place. The Lord says, deal with this first so you can genuinely help them. You know, I love that. The Bible says, judge not. You know, don't, don't judge me. Oh, no, it doesn't. It says, me take care of my junk so I can help you take care of your junk. That's what it says. That's what it means. Judge first here so that you can help someone else there. If you want to make an impact, if we want to make an impact to really minister to the lost around us, we need to first deal with ourselves, to let God break our hearts so that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth can speak out of the abundance of his love, mercy, and grace that we've experienced, his power, that we can then speak with power about sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? Well, verse 38, here's the conclusion. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, hey, the law's open, the court's open right here, and there are deputies, there are Roman officials here, you can let them and plead or accuse one another there. But, if you inquire anything concerning other matters, well, guess what? We will call an assembly about it. You don't need to start a riot. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, that being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. There is no reason for us to be gathered here, and now I have to go tell the Roman authorities what's going on. And so when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly and everybody left. So God took care of it without needing Paul to do anything, right? Right? God knows how to save the righteous. 
He knows how to deliver the righteous. So this whole thing happened because of these Christians bringing forth those secrets. Secret sins, they have the ability to quench the power of the Spirit and to squeeze the life out of our living witness, even when the words that we share with others are right on. And so my encouragement to you this morning is let's live what we believe when it's only Jesus who's watching that our light might shine brightly from a hilltop. Amen? Amen. I want to read to you from Psalm 44, verses 1 through 4. My heart for our church this week has been that what happened last Sunday as God poured out his spirit upon us would not just fall by the wayside, that we would not just kind of go back to regular everyday living. And in Psalm 44, the writer there says, we have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what work you did in their days in the times of old how you did drive out the heathen with your hand and you did plant them, how you did afflict the people and cast them out. For they did not get the land of possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand and your arm and the light of your countenance because you had a favor unto them or you showed them favor. He says, Lord, I want to see you do these things again because it's you that does the work of bringing victory. And so in saying that, he says, you are my king, oh God. That's where it starts. Where do we start seeing that happen? It starts as individual lives say, Lord, you are my king. Don't let that secret sin thrive in the darkness anymore. Find a leader today. Find somebody. Go into the prayer room. Just find somebody to say, I need to get this into the light. I need to talk to somebody about this. This is what's going on in my life, and I don't want it to be a part of my life anymore. Would you stand with me in this and pray for me? This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.